Well, as you're taking your Bibles and turning them open to Mark chapter 14, uh, let me ask you a question, and you can raise your hand if if this is you. How many of you have made New Year's resolutions this year? You you sat down at some point, you gave a conscious decision to something you're going to do differently in 2017. Now, how many of you who raised your hand and you formed some type of New Year's resolution, how many of you, and you can be honest, we're a loving, gentle community, how many of you have already broken your New Year's resolutions? I know I have. I'm not very good at keeping New Year's resolutions. In fact, this time of year is very good for me in my relationship with Christ because this type of year reminds me of how I need the gospel. You see, New Year's resolutions remind us of how weak we are and how we Uh, need some good news to come to us when we're unable not only to live up to our own expectations, but when we consider how we are unable to live up to God's expectations. No matter how well-intentioned we may be, our wills are weak, and our wills need something outside of them to shore them up if we're going to become the types of disciples and the type of community God has called us to be. And this is true not only when you look at the world from uh, the perspective of the gospel, although the perspective of the gospel is the best way to look at the world, this is true when you look at the world from uh, other angles as well. There was a man by the name of David Brooks who wrote a book called The Social Animal. And in it, he compiles a lot of uh, social studies about uh, how inadequate the human will is, uh, no matter how well-intentioned it may be. And so in this book, this is what he describes. He says, you know... Both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and exercising self-control. But neither of these character models have proven very effective. You can tell people not to eat the french fry. You can give pamphlets about the risks of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry. And in their non-hungry state, most people will vow not to eat it. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self fades. And they eat the french fry. Most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue unconscious urges. The evidence suggests reason and will are like muscles and not particularly powerful muscles. In some cases and in the right circumstances, they can resist temptation and control the impulses, but in many cases, they are too weak to impose self-discipline by themselves. In many cases, self-delusion often takes control. Reason and will are weak muscles. And if you try to live the Christian life according to your reason and your will, you will fail. Our reason and our will must be shored up by the wonders of God's grace, the power of the gospel. I think this is what we, in part, are being cued into in tonight's passage Because in tonight's passage, you're going to see a couple things converge. On one hand, you're going to see human weakness at play. You're going to see human weakness in the lives of the disciples as Jesus predicts that they're going to 
fall away after he is taken away. And, he, and you're going to see them falling asleep time and time and time again in the Garden of Gethsemane. You're going to see them bailing on Jesus in his uh, most intense moment of need. You're going to see human weakness on display by the disciples. No matter how well-intentioned Peter may have been when he said, even if that's true of everyone else, I'm not going to deny you, even as well-intentioned as he is, you're going to find Peter and all the other disciples failing miserably in this passage. Their reason and their will was not sufficient. Human weakness is on display in the lives of the disciples in tonight's passage. But on the flip side of that, you're going to see holy wonder on display. You're going to see the grace of God on display when you look at the words of Jesus and you consider all that Jesus does in this passage. And so if you want to learn how do you live the Christian life, how do you engage the God who made you in a redemptive capacity, well, you live not according to your will and your reason. You live according to your faith in the grace of the gospel. You want your human weakness to be consumed by holy wonder you want your heart to be enthralled with who Jesus is and what Jesus does for you as displayed in this passage so it starts with this idea of the prediction of Jesus beginning in verse 26 as after he and his disciples finished celebrating the the Passover meal they then sing a song together and they go out into the Mount of Olives they return to a familiar spot a place that he and his disciples had hung out before and they come to this moment and then Jesus in verse 27 predicts something unflattering. He says in verse 27, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's saying, guys, there's coming a moment when every one of you are going to be, you're going to flee. You're going to fail. You're not going to follow me to the, to the degree that you might want to. You're going to all be scattered here in a moment. And the word he uses there for scatter, don't interpret that the same way we would interpret Judas's betrayal. This, the Judas's betrayal was of a different sort. What he's describing in the lives of the disciples is a temporary lapse. They're going to fail to follow Jesus according to verse 27, and, but according to verse 28, there's going to come a day when they come back. He's going to rise, and when that happens, he's going to regather his disciples. And when he makes this statement, Jesus is actually quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, a man by the name of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, where, where the I in that phrase, I will strike the shepherd, that I there refers actually to God. Jesus is saying everything that's about to go down is about to go down according to the will of God. God is the one who's going to strike the shepherd. God is the one who's going to send the son ultimately to the cross. And all of it is going to be in fulfillment of his will, of his purpose, of his passion. But when you look at the passage, even though Jesus is quoting scripture, and even though Jesus' word is reliable, everything that Jesus has told the disciples has come to pass and is coming to pass, and even though his word has been utterly trustworthy and reliable time and time and time again in this gospel, Peter still disagrees with Jesus. Peter still protests. Peter still objects. He says, no, 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 Jesus. Uh, that might be true of everyone else, but it's not true of me. Listen to what he says. It says in verse 29, Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. Even if they fall, I will not. They may bail on you, but I'm not going to bail on you. Peter believes he is the one exception to Jesus' words. What's true of them isn't true for me. And you understand that Peter is expressing there is the epitome of pride, right? Like that is the epitome of pride. 
Pride literally means to show yourself above. And in pride, we try to show ourselves above one another, and we try to show ourselves above our God. This is precisely what Peter is doing. He's trying to show himself above the words of Jesus, say, that, that's great for other people. That may be true of them, but it's not true of me. And he disagrees with Jesus, and he does it in, a, in an incredibly audacious way. I mean, notice how many times he says, I. Even after Jesus corrects him in verse 30, he says, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Too many first-person singular pronouns came out of his mouth. And some of you right now are living, trying to live the Christian life with too many first-person singular pronouns coming out of your mouth. Your approach to the Christian life is all about you. It's all about your will. It's all about your reason. And there comes a point where you must humble yourself and recognize how dependent you are upon the grace of God and the gospel, not only for the start of the Christian life, but for the duration of the Christian life and the consummation of the Christian life when all is said and done. And so Peter here is disagreeing with Jesus, and that is a terrible thing to do. If you're ever tempted to disagree with Jesus, don't. Jesus knows better than you. In fact, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus is always right, and a lot of times you and I are, are wrong. And every time when we're disagreeing with Jesus, we're wrong. Peter here in this moment is wrong. And what's interesting about this is when you read the same account in Luke, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus actually talks about how uh, the enemy is going to get the best of Peter uh, when he denies him, he says, and listen to this, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, he, says, he tells him, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, Satan has demanded to sift you, and guess what, Peter, I'm going to let him. And what needed to be sifted out of Peter was his self-reliance. What needed to be sifted out of Peter was his self-centeredness. What needed to be sifted out of Peter was his tendency to talk about himself in every moment he's interacting with Jesus. And so Jesus actually says, look, Satan has demanded to have you. I'm going to let him because there's some things that needed to be sift. There's some things that need to be sifted out of you. But don't sweat it, Peter. He's not going to get the best of you in the end. I'm going to I'm going to pray for you and your faith ultimately is, isn't going to fail. You're going to come back around. You're going to trust me. And when you do, Peter, you're going to strengthen the brothers. You're going to be more qualified to serve me than you were before being sifted. You see, one of the beauties about the gospel is that the gospel guarantees that our failures are not final. Our failures are actually formative. When Jesus allows us to be sifted, when Jesus hands us over to the inadequacies of our will and our reason, when Jesus does that, and we are sifted in that process, understand that the end goal for that movement in your life is not for your failure to be final, but for your failure to be formative. So that you, when you turn back, when you repent, when you come to a better understanding of God's grace in the gospel, you in some way will be more qualified to serve Jesus than you were before you failed. 
It's one of the mysteries of grace. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail him. Jesus knew all of his disciples were going to abandon him. But Jesus works it out in such a way that even in their failure, he's going to use their failure to form them more and more and more into the people Jesus wanted them to be. It's the wonder of grace. It's holy wonder that Jesus would operate in this kind of way in our lives. This is essentially what he said earlier. He said, verse 27, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's the bad news, but then he couples that with the good. And there is a remarkable symmetry between verses 27 and 28. Right after he says, the shepherd will be struck, you're going to scatter. Then he says in verse 28, but I'm going to rise again. Resurrection is coming. Life, hope is there. And when I do, I'm going to regather you. I'm going to regather you and you're going to know more about God's grace and God's gospel than you would have before. Now when you hear that, I want you to understand that your sin is never justifiable. But your sin is always redeemable. We are never justified when we deny Jesus. We are never justified when we abandon Jesus. But there is no sin in the Christian life that is not redeemable. That's holy wonder. That's the grace of the gospel. God flipping the script on all the times when we strike out and he lets us bat again. You see, in baseball, you know that three strikes, you're out, you're done. Three outs, you're out and the inning's over. But in the kingdom of God, that's not how things work out. The kingdom of God doesn't work out that way. So even till, he even tells Peter, he says, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But even then, you're going to come back. And even then, I'm going to use you once again. You're going to become the person I've redeemed you to be. And so Jesus has this conversation where he's predicting this about the disciples. And then he turns his attention in verse 32 and he moves with, his or with some of his disciples into a place called Gethsemane. And we step into one of the holiest moments in all of the gospel where Jesus goes to a place called Gethsemane, this garden. Now the word Gethsemane literally means olive press. And that's an appropriate term for what goes down in Gethsemane because you see Jesus being pressed, being squeezed in the garden. You see Jesus wrestling with the will of his Father. You see Jesus uh, with great sorrow and anguish of heart praying the same prayer about the will of the Father over and over and over again. You see Jesus under great pressure and under great strain in Gethsemane. But notice what he does when he enters into that place of pressure. He doesn't go by himself, at least initially. He invites three of his disciples to come along with him. The same disciples that Jesus would take with him to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. He brings these same guys with him and he says, sit here, or he tells the disciples to sit here while I pray. And then he says in verse 33, he took those guys and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he tells them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Remain here and pray. Remain here and be spiritually engaged in this moment. I love that Jesus brings these guys in on this setting because it reminds us of the humility of Jesus, the humble humanity of Jesus. Not only did he allow Peter, James, and John to see him when he was on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was 
on top of the world, so to speak, and his glory was, was shown in that setting and in that scene. Here, when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he does not go by himself, but he brings those same guys with him, and he says, look, I'm the kind of guy that you're not only gonna see me when things are going good, you're gonna see me when I'm struggling. You're gonna see me when I reach a low point. You're gonna see me wrestling with the will of my Father, the humble humanity of Jesus, modeling for us what kingdom community and discipleship is all about. When you step into relationships with other believers, understand for those relationships to be formative in your life and for those to have the effect that they should, you have to step into the type of rhythms where you let them see you when you're doing good and you let them see you when you're struggling. But a lot of times we're only comfortable for people to see us when we're on top of the mountain, when things are going well. We only want them to see us in our glory. We don't want them to see us groaning. We don't want them to see us struggling. So a lot of times when we are hurting and we find ourselves under pressure, we isolate from community. We try to go at it ourselves and to do that is to, is to shortchange yourself. To do that is to ruin the opportunity you have to experience kingdom community and to experience the grace of the gospel that extends to you through the lives of those around you. So one of my prayers for the Hallows Church is that we would have the type of life, we would share the kind of lives together that not only sees us when things are going well, but we're seeing one another when everything's not when we're wrestling with the will of God, when we're struggling or having a hard time, we want to invite people in even then. This is what you see Jesus doing, and I think it's instructive for us. And, and to be honest with you, Jesus invites these guys in, but then their weakness is exposed once again. They come to the garden. Jesus is depending upon them to stay awake, to watch, to be spiritually attentive in that moment, but then three times he finds them sleeping. Three times he finds them lethargic. Now, maybe they had too much wine at the Passover meal. I don't know. It's late and they're tired. But still, Jesus expected them to stay with him, only they didn't. They were, they were weak. Human weakness is exposed once again. You know, obedience in the Christian life never comes easily. And if you want to make obedience in the Christian life even harder than it already is, try to obey according to your reason. Try to obey according to your will. Allow first-person singular pronouns to flow out of your mouth regularly. Well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Instead, why don't you step back and humbly say, by God's grace, this will happen. By God's grace, I'll go in that direction. By God's grace, I'll be able to obey in this way. So you see the weakness of the disciples in this story. And we're reminded once again, though, when you contrast how the disciples are acting with the wonder of what Jesus does in the garden, particularly as it relates to his submission, we're reminded of just how strong he is. That's what we're told to consider. That's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 would say these words to us. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This, this resolve, this resistance that arises when we are considering Christ, when we are trusting Jesus, when we are thinking about the holy wonder of what he accomplished for us. That's what infuses power into our lives so that we might resist sin and resist temptation, so that we might be spiritually attentive 
all the days of our lives and not just part of the days of our lives. And sound like a soap opera with that one, right? So you have the submission of Jesus in this story. The disciples are sleeping. Their weakness is on display, but his strength is very present. His strength is found when you consider the type of emotional strain he is under in verse 33. The holy wonder of Jesus, verse 33, where it says that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Then in verse 34, it says his soul is very sorrowful. Then it says in verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. Now, Jewish men usually prayed upright. They didn't fall prostrate on the ground unless somebody was sensing something intense or they were in a serious situation or some type of emotional toll was taking place in the person's life. And this is what Jesus does. He falls on the ground and he prays. And he prays, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him, that, that maybe the cross wouldn't happen. And then you see verse 36. This is the prayer we are told he prays three times. He goes to God and he says, Abba, Father, a sign of intimacy. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you be done. And so Jesus is on his face and he's praying this prayer. Now, once again, Italian Renaissance paintings don't do justice to this scene. Just like in the Passover and the Last Supper, Italian Renaissance paintings do not do justice to what's going on in Jesus' life. A lot of times, Jesus is pictured in the garden with some kind of glow, some kind of glory. He's some painted in these pastel colors with a bright face. Understand that Jesus is not glowing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is groaning. Jesus is on his face. He is weeping through the will of his Father. The Gospel of Luke would tell us that Jesus is under such strain and such stress over what he's about to do that the blood vessels beneath the surface of his skin began to pop. And so as sweat began to fall from his brow, blood did too. When he's squeezed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begins to bleed. He is struggling and straining through the will of his Father. This is what he's wrestling with. And you consider that image and you're wondering, well, why was Jesus under such pressure? Are we worshiping a cowardly Christ tonight? Are we worshiping a cowardly Christ with the lives that we lead? Every time we sing, are we singing to a Jesus who was cowardly in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, that would be true if you think that Jesus is weeping simply because he's going to physically suffer on the cross. It would be true because you know as well as I do that there's been other men and women all throughout the history of the church who've gone to their graves with more courage than Jesus displays in Gethsemane. I'm reminded of a man who was skinned alive in India. And as he was being skinned alive and this was going on, he would cry out these, he would make this statement, take my outer garment off today. Today I clothe myself in a new garment. We hear that and think, well, that's courage. Where's Jesus' courage? I'm reminded of a guy named Christopher Love who was going to the gallows for his faith in Jesus. And as he's going to the gallows, his wife is standing over to the side and she's applauding his faith as he's moving in that direction. And it is said that as she's applauding, she hollers out, today they will sever you from your physical head, but they cannot sever you from your spiritual head. And her words would prompt love to start singing as he's making his way to the gallows. 
If Jesus is only concerned about the physical suffering he will endure on the cross, then he's going to the grave with less courage than countless men and women all throughout the history of the church. But obviously, Jesus is not weeping. He's not sweating drops of blood because he's afraid primarily of the physical suffering he will endure. There's something deeper at work, and he's aware of it. He refers to a cup in his prayer. He refers to the cup, and that's the key to understanding the stress and the strain and the sorrow that he's sensing. This cup that is used, it's an image that pops up often all throughout the Bible, and it speaks of the idea of destiny. It speaks of the idea of of a person's uh, God-ordained destiny. And sometimes a cup can refer to blessing. It can refer to someone's destiny of salvation, something good. But the vast majority of times where you read about a cup in the Old Testament on into the book of Revelation, when you see that image, it doesn't refer necessarily to salvation and blessing. It refers to wrath and judgment. This would be found, and give you these to write down. You can check them out later. Psalm 75, verse 8, you can read about it there. Isaiah 51, verse 17, you can read about it there. Revelation chapter 14, you can read about it there. And there are countless other references to a cup that refers not to blessing and salvation, but to wrath and judgment. And I don't think Jesus is sweating drops of blood because he's crying about salvation and blessing. I think the pressure he feels is the awareness he has. He knows he's come into this world to do something specific. He's come into this world to die a particular kind of death, a death that would be utterly unique from every other person's death who's ever died in this world. Jesus has come to do something very, very distinct. And sometimes when you think about Jesus wrestling with the will of the Father and his destiny of going to the cross and drinking this cup, there's some bad analogies out there trying to describe what Jesus went through and and what kind of set up that scenario. I remember when I was a kid, I went to a a dramatization of of the gospel. and In this dramatization where they were trying to communicate the gospel through some bad scripts. There was a story told about um, basically a train operator who was responsible for raising and lowering a bridge every time a train came through this particular ravine. And this one day at work, he brings his son with him. And as he's doing his job, he kind of turns his attention to some things and the kid wanders off. And so his son wanders off and he's kind of playing down by the tracks and the train is up or the bridge is up. And then the Operator notices that there is a train coming down the track, and he thinks to himself, well, I've got to get the bridge down so that all those people in the train can be saved. And, and then he looks, and he finds his son playing down on the track, and he knows that if he lowers the bridge, he's going to kill his son. But if he doesn't lower the bridge, all those people are going to die. So the father has to make a choice between his son or the lives of those on the train. And so the story goes, and this was the big punchline of The analogy was, well, the father made the hard choice, the sacrifice, to lower lower the bridge and to crush his son so that everybody in the train could, could live. That's a terrible analogy for what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's a terrible analogy for what's happening in the gospel. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's not going to the cross because he somehow wandered away from the father. 
Jesus doesn't go to the cross because he's been disobedient or negligent. The father's not torn between the will of saving his son from the cross and saving you and me. That's not what's going on when Jesus goes to the cross. We know that the Father sends the Son, and what we see in Jesus, the holy wonder of this moment, is as Jesus is praying to the Father, he gets to this point where he submits to the will of his Father. He offers up himself. He says, Father, I'm going I'm to do what you want me to do. Now, I love the fact that he gets to that conclusion, but he gets to that conclusion not in a fatalistic fashion, as though the cross would be easy, as though he was living his life by fate. He gets to that conclusion because in his humanity, he's living his life by faith. He's trusting the Father that even if this cup will not pass from him, he's going, saying, not my will, but your will be done. That is submission. Jesus agrees with the Father when he goes to the cross. They are not at odds. They are not at tug of war. When Jesus goes to the cross, it is not because he's been negligent. It's not because he wanders away from the will of the Father. It's because he's been, he's obeying faithfully, submitting to what his Father would, would have him do. And when he goes to the cross, he does drink a cup. And so a better analogy, and it's really hard to to portray what actually goes down. We can't really communicate the gravity of what Jesus endured on the cross, but there was a preacher from a previous generation. He would, he would put it this way. He'd say, it's like you and I are standing in front of a dam. And imagine this dam is 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide, and it is filled to the brim with water. And then in one instant, the dam breaks, and all of that water comes rushing towards you. The preacher would say in the same way, the, the torrent of the wrath of God is, is coming, rushing towards us. Now, imagine as that's happening, the water's flowing towards you, then just before it reaches you, just before it levels you, it crushes you, imagine that the ground in front of you opens up and the ground opens up, swallowing every single drop. And he would say in the same way, when Christ went to the cross, he took the full cup of a wrathful God. And he drank down every single drop, so much so that he would cry out from the cross, it is finished. He would turn the cup over, empty and dry, absorbing it all, satisfying the wrath of God, not because he was disobedient, because you, were, you and I are disobedient, not because he was weak, but because you and I are weak, not because he could not overcome and resist in that moment, but because you and I cannot overcome and resist the wrath of God that was heading towards us. The cup means Jesus submitted to satisfying the wrath of God on the cross. That's the holy wonder of the crucifixion. And it is the cup that compels you and I to resist singing songs like we are the champions, right? We don't live our, the Christian life singing we are the champions, we don't live the Christian life boasting in ourselves, using first-person singular pronouns all the time in our discipleship. We do not live the Christian life focusing on ourselves. We live the Christian life singing songs like, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Those are the songs that we sing when we get the gospel. Those are the songs that we sing when our faith is being shored up by the holy wonder of God's grace. Songs such as this, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. 
Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full of atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. You want to learn how to live the Christian life. Make that the song of your Christian life. Recognize the submission of the Son and stand in the holy wonder of His grace and His goodness towards you. That when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, He died on the cross not only for your sins, but for all the sins of all of God's people throughout all of human history, all of God's wrath that was moving towards that, that warranted that. He satisfied every bit of it. He drank the cup completely. He turned it over dry. It is finished. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's our gospel. That's the holy wonder we see in the submission of the Son. You see this at the end of the moment where after the weakness of the disciples is displayed the third time, verse 41, it says, Jesus comes once again. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then you have this exchange in verse 43 where Judas comes with not only some religious officials, but he comes with some Roman officials. John's gospel would tell us that Judas was accompanied by a cohort of soldiers. A cohort of soldiers could be reasonably estimated to be 600 soldiers, armed to the hilt, all of whom coming to Jesus. Maybe they thought he was going to leave, lead a revolt. Maybe he thought they were going to put up a fight. So they came armed and ready to arrest Jesus. And as they entered this the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they go to find Jesus. It, it's dark. You can't see very well. So Judas arranged a plan with the captors, saying, well, I'm going to go, and I'm going I'm to give a kiss to Jesus. That's how you're going to recognize which one of these men in the dark is Jesus. And then Judas goes, and he shows up because he knew where they would be, a familiar place. And he finds Jesus, and when he finds Jesus, he Betrayed him with a kiss, one of the grossest acts in all of human history. When Judas, a man whom Jesus taught for three years, a man whom Jesus served for three years, a man whom Jesus used to advance the kingdom of God in the world, this one would betray Jesus with a kiss. And so he comes to Jesus, he kisses him. That signals everyone. They come to arrest Jesus. Some of the disciples still don't quite, quit, don't quite get what's going on, one of them, whom in particular. And you might say, well, this is a, a commendable act, and maybe it was, but it's still off-key. He pulls out his sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers, perhaps in an effort to defend Jesus, forgetting that Jesus is there to defend them. You know, you and I never defend Jesus. Jesus always defends us. And so Jesus puts a stop to what, John, what John's gospel would say, Peter's reckless act. And he would say, Peter, that's not how we do things. 
My kingdom will not come because we're taking lives. My kingdom will come because I'm giving my life. And Jesus then would show this great mercy in that moment by picking up the ear of the soldier and reattaching it to the head. He's doing the all types of things that only Jesus can do. Mending the soldier's ear that was there to arrest him. But then notice what Jesus says at the end of the story in verse 48. Then Jesus looks at everyone who's there to arrest him and he says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Who do you think I am? I'm not leading a political military revolt. I'm here to establish the kingdom of God. And the nature of the kingdom of God is about sacrifice and service. It's not about self-assertion and military might. Don't you know who I am? And then notice what he says in verse 49. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You had plenty of opportunities to get me, but you didn't. And the reason they didn't get Jesus is because they couldn't get Jesus, which is why he would say, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Everything that's going down in Jesus' life is in, is in fulfillment of the scriptures. Everything is in fulfillment of God's promises. The religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, even Judas himself could not do anything that Jesus did not allow them to. They could not do anything that God had not prescribed and predicted and promised would be done in the Old Testament. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And the rest of the disciples hear that and they think, well, if Jesus is going to go so easily with these guys, we're out. And they fled. They bailed. They ran from Jesus. The shepherd would be struck and all the sheep would be scattered. But then you get this interesting moment in verse 51. Perhaps the first streaker in all of human history. You know, every major event is accompanied by streakers. This one, no different. We're told about this young man who's following them, perhaps watching from the sidelines. A young, unknown, unnamed man. Some would say, well, maybe it was Mark, the writer of this gospel. Others would say maybe it was Bartimaeus, the man whom Jesus healed earlier in this gospel, who, who gave up his clothes to follow. It was all, all he had was... Um, one garment that he could wear. And so some would say maybe it's Bartimaeus. But notice what it says. It says, this young man followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And then when they began to seize him, it says he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. He bailed. He fled naked. And you're wondering, well, what is that about? Why would that detail be included at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane? Why do you have a naked man is it just for humor? Is it just for interest? Or is there a deeper purpose and a deeper reason? I think it's because there's a deeper purpose and a deeper reason. On one hand, it exposes human weakness. Realize that this naked man would rather run around town naked than be associated with Jesus. That's human weakness. But at the same time, this naked man exposes the holy wonder of the gospel because this naked man kind of brings us back to another garden. When the Bible begins, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. They have access to all that is good and right and pure and true. They can walk with God on a daily basis. There's one tree that they are told not to eat from, this one tree, the knowledge of the good and evil. But then the serpent slithered in, and he tempted Adam and Eve to eat from that tree. And in that moment, Adam would say, not 
Your will, God, but my will be done. They took the fruit, they ate the fruit, and plunged all of humanity into sin. The world was broken because of what went down in the Garden of Eden. And you remember how that story ended in Eden. It ended with Adam and Eve recognizing what? Recognizing that they were naked and ashamed. Human weakness on full display as guilt, fear, and shame begin to characterize the human condition as a result of Adam saying, not your will, God, but my will be done. And here, the writer of this gospel would position a naked man at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? I believe to call forth that moment and to remind us that a new Adam has arised. A new Adam has stepped onto the scene. One who would come and not say, not your will, God, but my will be done. But one who would pray, not my will, but your will be done. One who would submit. One who, though he's abandoned by all of his friends, everybody bells on him. Everybody's ashamed of him. The one who would still remain faithful to his calling, faithful to his mission, submitting himself to the will of the Father and going to the cross so that he might remedy the guilt and the fear and the shame that has characterized humanity ever since Eden. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Adam said, not your will, but mine be done, and all of creation was plunged into sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would say, not my will, but your will, God, be done. And when he did, redemption for all of creation would begin. He's bringing in a new day. Jesus is showing himself to be the one who would set everything right. The one who would remove all of our shame. The one who would remove all of our guilt. The one who would remove all of our fear. The one who would clothe us in righteousness and holiness and purity. The one who would give us grace so that you and I might find our human weakness being overcome by holy wonder, so that we might sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for being sent. Jesus, thank you for submitting yourself to the will of your Father and going to the cross to satisfy God's justified wrath and to make a way for our guilt and our fear and our shame to be covered up, to be clothed. Thank you, Jesus, for being the new and the better Adam. Thank you, Jesus, for being strong, though we are weak. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us grace. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us mercy. And we pray that as we think about your gospel over these next several moments, we pray that you would shore up our faith. We pray that by your grace, our faith will not fail. God, we are trusting you to be all that you are for us all the days of our lives as we seek to live this life that you've called us to. God, we love you. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.